This is Talking Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talking Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking Mule Deer. This is Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Belinda, and welcome back to another edition of Talking Mule Deer. Uh, Jody, we're, today we're, we're hitting pretty close to home to me. We, we're going to be talking about Montana. Uh, actually, it is home. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can still see Wyoming, so I get confused right. sometimes. But uh, no, we're going to be talking to Chris Fortune, of course, who is our uh, Mule Deer Foundation's regional director for Montana, and also Brian Wakeling, who is the game division chief for the Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Farm parks welcome gentlemen thank you thanks, thanks for, for having us. us really excited to have you guys both on board it's how's the weather in montana these days are you getting a little less smoky fire's going down yeah well. you know right <laughs> <laughs> like they keep saying you know if you don't like the weather in montana wait five minutes <laughs> Very true stuff. Yeah, I know you guys have gotten a little bit of moisture recently in parts of the state, so I know that's a good thing because I know it's been pretty dry. Very yes, famous. So, so Chris, you're you. We haven't had you on a podcast. We're going to give you a chance to talk a little bit about about your background. And and Brian, I know that that you're fairly new to Montana, although you and I have known each other for quite some time in states uh, in other states. So, Chris, why don't you jump in? Tell us a little bit about yourself. How you got to where you are? I know. I know that Montana's a pretty special place to you. It is. Uh, you know, as a kid, I was born in Missouri. My dad came out to Montana on several hunting trips. Um, came home one day and said, "We're moving to Montana." We all kind of rolled our eyes and said, "Oh yeah." And then sixty days later, we rolled into Big Timber, Montana. Uh, that's where I went to high school, and then I left for college and went to Missoula. Uh, became a Grizz. Bozeman was too close to home. So, uh, so yeah, I raised, ended up raising my family in the Bitterroot, uh, minus the five years I spent in the Navy. And then, um, I got involved with the friends of the NRA as far as, uh, nonprofits go. I, I spent, uh, several years with them, was the chapter chair in the Bitterroot Valley for a few years. Then I, uh, got on board with the National Wild Turkey Federation, spent 13 years with them, uh, where I had the pleasure of meeting and working with our current new CEO, Joel Peterson. And then uh, took a little uh, break from conservation work for about five years and then got a phone call from the Mule Deer Foundation asking if I would be interested in the Montana position. And I jumped at it. Um, I love working in conservation. Uh, I love the outdoors. I love hunting, fishing. My family's been raised in it. Um, you know, so I'm very passionate about it and I love what I do. And, uh, and we're, going, we're going in the right direction in Montana. Things are going really, really well. Well, we're really glad to have you, Chris. And, and Brian, I will apologize ahead of a time if I say Arizona or Nevada talking to you because that's where I've known you from. Give us a little bit of your background. Yeah, you bet, Steve. And it, um, I mean, it's uh, certainly formed a lot of my, uh, my perceptions on the world, um, but I keep learning. Um, you know, I spent my first 26 professional years working with the Arizona Game and Fish Department. I left there as the game chief and had an opportunity to go work for the Nevada Department of Wildlife. Um, and I served for them and I served as the game chief there. And so this is my third state, my third opportunity. That's after spending five and a half years with Nevada. I'm now about a year and a half here in Montana as the game chief. And so, you know, you get to see an awful lot of uh, contrasts and, and similarities at, with a lot of states you know, because a lot of the challenges are the same. Um, a lot of the, the landscapes are have similarities, but there's a lot of differences too, a lot of nuances. And it, it, it's really delicate learning those nuances, learning those differences. Um, but every state is wrestling with the same kind of challenges. You know, how to, how to do the best we can for, for the variety of species we manage, including mule deer. Um, but how do we provide hunters with a chance to go and how do we provide them with the type of experience they want when they do go? Great. And um, so I'm just going to put it out there, Brian. Uh, what is the state of mule deer in Montana? And Chris, I'm going to have you weigh in 
after Brian's done? The answer to your question depends an awful lot on, on where you ask the question. Um, mule deer are doing really well in portions of the state, and they're just kind of, you know, bumping along in other parts of the state. Uh, you get up in the northeastern part of the state, and I mean, there's just wonderful opportunities. There's, there's uh, multiple tags that, that residents can, can obtain. Um, you move into the you know, central or even the northeastern part of the state, and there's definitely been some challenges. I mean, um, everybody looks at the last couple of winters that we've had here in Montana, and you think, well, for the most part, they've been pretty mild. Um, despite the fact that they're mild by Montana standards, um, it was a little early. Um, we moved into our house on October 10th, and on October 17th, we had our first substantial snowfall that really dropped temperatures and made things really cool. And the last snowfall was about May 23rd. And so that's a pretty long winter by anybody's standards. Um, but there wasn't a lot of really deep snow in a lot of places, which is really favorable uh, for overwinter survival. The summer's been dry. And as your summers get dry, you start to really play havoc with trying to get young to hit the ground and recruit them into the population. And so it's a double-edged sword. Um, like I say, it depends who you ask and where you ask the question, um, you'll get a different answer. Yeah, th thanks. Um, you know, never ask a biologist a, a yes or no question because our answer is going to be it depends. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, and that's rightly so. I mean, it, it, that's the, the nature of wildlife management is there are no easy answers. There's all kinds of factors that affect our wildlife populations, and, and this is very true. I've definitely heard about uh, how dry it is up there, obviously, near where you guys are both living, but I've, I've heard about it more on the Northeast Plains uh, and the grassland areas. Is that going to be problematic? You mentioned it a little bit. Tell us a little bit about what that might mean for some of the, the, the deer populations there, which have been historically pretty good and had some pretty big bucks. Yeah, so there's a number of things that droughts influence. Um, you know, when we think about uh, bucks and um, antler production, um, they're influenced by a number of things. Everybody always jumps on you know, the genetics, um, and everybody uh, has a tendency to, to jump on, you know, how hunts are managed. Uh, but probably one of the biggest driving factors is what kind of groceries are on the ground and available while those antlers are growing. And so you have a dry summer, and you probably have the likelihood to probably see uh, reduced forage production, reduced forage quality, and you're likely to see antler growth kind of suffer as a result of it. Uh, that doesn't mean that there won't be some tremendous bucks harvested or that they aren't uh, any more um, that are, are going to be uh, uh, available, uh, that they're out there and they're harder to see. But um, those are, you know, real things that we need to look at. But from a population management perspective, probably a bigger concern is not so much whether or not there's going to be big antlers this year or not, but what are we going to have going into the winter? So if you go into the winter in poor condition, um, even an average winter may be really severe, may, might be hard to, um, to survive compared to a year when you're in really good condition. Um, it creates greater challenges. It also creates greater challenges for uh, the females. They're carrying, they're carrying fetuses. Um, you're hoping for a really good um, reproductive uh, si situation coming into the spring. Um, but if they go into the winter in poor condition, um, those fawns, when they are born, and it, it rarely influences fawn production much, but it often influences the condition of the fawns when they hit the ground. And if they hit the ground in poor condition, which is what happens if the, if the does are in poor condition, then their likelihood for survival drops as well. So we've got kind of a double whammy. You have um, the likelihood that a fawn's going to survive to be recruited into the population is reduced this year because uh, forage conditions are less. Um, and then next year, you've got the potential for uh, fawns to be born in a lesser, lesser condition, and uh, that can influence their survival as well. And, and Brian, I know recently there was some stuff came out about the, the pronghorn issue 
from this summer's drought. I'm assuming that it affects uh, pronghorn, white-tailed deer, and elk uh, similarly, but different based on their needs, correct? Yeah, drought has a tendency to have similar effects on each species. Um, the difference is, you know, the timing of reproduction, the timing of fawn drop, um, the types of habitats they tend to inhabit. Uh, whitetails often inhabit areas that have some agriculture available to them. And, uh, you know, private landowners often subsidize wildlife and white-tailed deer often take advantage of that situation. Um, and so they tend to have less fluctuations than what we typically see in mule deer. Um, elk, uh, similarly, are, uh, tend to be more robust, tend to see fewer fluctuations. They're able to take advantage of a wider array. They're primarily browsers, uh, but in a bad situation, they can take advantage of, of um, they're primarily grazers, take advantage of browse. Um, you know, deer are primarily browsers, but in bad situations, the grass is often the first thing to go. And so it's harder for them to be as um, adept and adept at being able to switch and take advantage of other things that, and so we tend to see more fluctuations, I think, in mule deer than what we see in whitetail or elk populations. Thanks, Brian. So we have to take a break. We got to hear from our supporters. So we'll come back on that. Elk, sheep, big old muleys, not a problem for the 27 Nosler. We packed it with more downrange punch than the 300 Win Mag. We designed it to be flatter shooting than the 6.5 PRC. The 27 Nosler is everything you've heard, all that you've asked for, and plenty more. So enough talking. Check out the numbers for yourself and see what makes the 27 Nosler such a beast at Nosler.com. All right, we're back. And before the break, we heard uh, Brian's perception of the, the uh, state of mule deer in Montana and wanted to give... Chris a chance to give us his thoughts as the Mule Deer's Foundation's Regional Director. Chris, what are you thinking? Well, I um, I agree. I agree that uh, the habitat uh, part of it this summer, you know, with it being so dry, I mean, the last thing that I would hope for, you know, and you hear a lot of people saying, man, I hope it's a bit, I hope it's a good winter. Uh, I don't think that's a good idea uh, after what they've struggled through this summer. But you know, I talk to a lot of people that are on the ground, the hunters, um, the people that spend time in the mountains, and and I hear a lot of diversity. Obviously, our numbers are on a downward twin, uh, trend, and they have been for, you know, 20 years or so in the northwest part of the state. The numbers in the southwest part of the state, depends on where you're at, Bitterroot Valley, the numbers appear to be good. Although, if you talk to the people that primarily hunt the, the mountains down there, they say the mountain herd is far and in between. You, you can't find them. They appear to be being driven down into the valleys, whether that's due to hunting pressure or pressure from predators, but they're finding sanctuary in a lot of that lowland country, not only in the Bitterroot, but some other parts of the state. Um, and that's where they're hanging out. And we're, we're starting to develop, you know, urban deer in places that really aren't urban, just small towns. So I think, like I say, it, it depends on who you're talking to. I've had uh, comments with um, and some dialogue with some biologists around the state this year and you know numbers uh, in south central Montana are not that good according to them uh, central Montana they are although I think we still need to deal with the issue of why are mule deer moving out of certain areas um, my, my Lewistown chapter where we have a banquet this coming Saturday one of the reasons they really wanted to develop a chapter there was not only raise money for for habitat but or in conservation, but they wanted to develop a, a bigger voice and, and try to communicate with FWP and our local biologists and stuff and find out, you know, why are our mule deer numbers down in areas where they used to be plentiful? Um, and we really don't have the answers for all that. I don't think there's been enough studies done. So I hope as we build our partnership with FWP and, you know, we continue raising money around the state as, as I continue to build more new chapters, uh, we can put that money to use and, uh, and find out what's going on. And Chris, that leads us to a good segue into how you do put your money on the ground. You've had a great year. I mean, I can tell you that looking at the numbers and talking to the other folks uh, at the higher levels that, you know, you guys report to uh, everyone singing Montana and your praises this year. Um, 
give us a little bit of insight on a why you think you're doing so well this year, and two, uh, the uniqueness of how you handle those chapter rewards fundings, habitat funds. Well, Montana was uh, one of the first states to well, was one of the last states to really shut down, and was one of the first states to open back up. And it all began in the summer of 2020 when we were able to have a few banquets that we had been postponing and postponing and postponing due to COVID. And then finally we were allowed to have some banquets take place. Um, and even though we had restrictions on attendance size, we still had some really good banquets. And to be honest with you, the kind of the, you know, we hear this a lot up here. It's, you know, people are spending money like it's growing on trees. Well, in a way it kind of is because of the stimulus money and things like that. But I just think Montanans in general, were tired of being cooped up. We're tired of being told, what they could do and what they couldn't do. And boy, when we were finally in a situation where we could have banquets, uh, they came out in in groves. We, we set attendance records in Kalispell, Billings. We had first time banquets in Big Timber, Dillon. We've got a new one in Lewistown. Um, it's just been unbelievable. And it's been a real blessing with the amount of um, support we've had from our, not only our volunteers, but those that have come out and support our banquets. and you know, they've just been great. And we, we've set a record. We had our best year ever as far as fundraising goes in the state of Montana in the fiscal year ending 2000, 2020, 2021. So, um, as far as how we spend it, it's great. Yeah. Montana's Montana's kind of unique. A few years ago, we voted, uh, all of our, all of our chapters got together and voted on that. We thought the monies that we raise our chapter rewards money could be better spent if we pooled it and we could develop a team of um, experts, if you'd like to call them that, uh, which we do have. We have a panel that comes in and looks at our projects that are presented. Uh, we have a deadline of November 1st, and then we usually review the projects first week of December. And that panel uh, reviews them. And Steve, you're part of that panel too. Um, we look these projects over and, and uh, by having all that money pooled, we can, we can kind of pick uh, with the majority decision of where that money is going to be best spent. And, and it prevents money from sitting there not being used. A lot of chapters um, have raised money and it just kind of sits there and doesn't get used. Uh, we put it on the ground right away and we're going to have, you know, uh, a good year next year or two. I think this is all going to carry over this momentum, uh, assuming that we don't have a, another breakdown due to COVID. But um, um, we are unique in that we, we do pull our money. We have a panel that comes in, helps us evaluate the projects that are presented. And then we kind of decide where we want to put that money at, where it's going to be best served. Give us a couple of examples of some of what the project review committee um, supported this year through Mule Deer Foundation. Well, we didn't have a meeting uh, this past December because of the COVID issues. Uh, or, I mean, we didn't have any projects that went on the ground this last year because of the COVID Um and then things were kind of slow to get back going this year as far as projects because of the fire danger. Uh, I know a lot of the projects that have been approved never hit the ground running because there was too much too much threat. Um, even some of our little chapter projects, we have a, a great committee down in Dillon and they had a they were going to do phase two of a project that they put together down there with BLM. Um, we couldn't do it. Uh, it was just too dry. And so we're kind of looking at next year being the year that we really start putting some of these funds on the ground and hopefully the weather will be more cooperative. Uh, but, you know, not only habitat projects, uh, but access issues as well. We've, we've pooled our money with a lot of our partners, you know, in, in 2019, which was our last full year that we were able to really put a lot of project money on the ground. We, we, along with our partners, um, we spent over $1.8 million on the ground in Montana alone. So wow. um, it, we're pretty proud of the fact that with the Mule Deer Foundation, you know, 88, 89 cents on every dollar of profit goes back in the ground in, in the form of projects. Yeah, that, that, that's pretty impressive. And Jody, I've been part of, of a little bit, um, at least one year with Chris and some of the previous RDs. And it really is those two days that they set aside to go over projects and have the, have the review panel. And, the, and then the chapters come in and they talk about it. And it, there's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of us looking at it by region. There's seven regions in Montana. You look at, um, you know, where th where the money's raised, where where folks are asking it to go, and then you you know you you look at it from the biologist, game and fish perspective, saying where are the opportunities and where's the biggest need, and and it really 
leads to a collective approach to deciding where that money goes. And, you know, whether it's a fencing project, whether it's a long-term habitat project, whether it's an access project, you really then can take that, that I won't say a little bit of money because it is significant, but that smaller chunk of money and leverage it, as Chris said, with other money, um, other grant money, other partners funding to get a bigger project done, a landscape approach done, which we've talked so much about on this and really allows us to address some of those needs that Brian and his staff and the folks at FWP and, and the state or the, the, the federal land management agencies are saying we really want to improve habitat or address these specific needs. So it, it's also a fun time. I mean, it's a, Montana's a, like Wyoming, it's a large state, you know, small town with really long streets. Everybody seems to know each other. We see each other all the time, even though it takes about 14 hours to drive from Ekalaka up to Troy. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it is a small community. That's for sure. So one thing that we haven't touched on yet that I know is a big issue in Montana is chronic wasting disease. Uh, Brian, what's the current update on the status of CWD in the state? Um, what are some things that hunters should be aware of? Now, I, I, I asked the question, and of course, um, we do have to take a break. So I'm giving you time to think about it while we hear from our supporters. If you're buying or selling a trophy hunting or fishing property in the western U.S., Our friends at St. James Sporting Properties should be your go-to resource. St. James Sporting Properties is more than an elite group of professional ranch brokers. They're also passionate about chasing monster mule deer, highly successful big game hunters, and avid outdoorsmen. When you combine their passion and expertise in the outdoors with their industry-leading marketing program, you're guaranteed to have a first-class experience. For more information, Go to the Supporting Partners page on MuleDeer.org or give St. James Sporting Properties a call today to buy or sell your dream sporting property. The best hunting stories begin long before the harvest. They begin with the hard work of conservation groups like the Mule Deer Foundation working tirelessly to protect our hunting traditions. As a proud partner of MDF, Vortex Optics is dedicated to improving your experience in the field by offering you rugged, Innovative optics and apparel backed by our VIP warranty, our unlimited lifetime promise to take care of you whenever you need us. Together, let's ensure mule deer always have a place to roam. The best hunting stories are yet to be told. Learn more at vortexoptics.com. All right, before the break, Brian, I was asking about chronic wasting disease. Can you give us a little bit of an update on what's going on? Yeah, you bet. Um, You know, chronic wasting disease, you know, really... uh, first detected in wild animals here in Montana about 2017. And we've certainly gone through an awful lot of effort since that time, trying to understand what the distribution is, trying to, you know, the big challenge, of course, is, you know, we don't have any real tools at our disposal that's going to stop it. Um, We know that with uh, increasing age, um, animals are more likely to demonstrate uh, clinical symptoms. Uh, we know with increasing density, uh, we wind up with increasing likelihood of exposure. Um, we know that whitetails tend to be uh, exposed more frequently and seem to have a higher prevalence where it exists uh, than what mule deer do. Um, mule deer, we seem to see uh, see it kind of uh, present itself more in bucks than we do in does. The prevalence is higher in bucks than it is in does. Um, not so much with whitetails. And then elk and moose also are susceptible to it, but they tend to be, um, the prevalence is much lower. Um, So, you know, those are the things we know. Uh, We also have been doing surveillance. Um, We've increased our surveillance efforts. We got additional funding. uh, The legislature and governor uh, granted us uh, additional authority to spend additional money on it this year. Um, it's going to help us continue to monitor it. If anybody harvests a deer, moose, elk uh, in the state, uh, resident, non-resident, if you harvest an animal here, you can get it tested for free. Um, just stop by one of our check stations, stop by one of our offices. You can take the sample yourself and mail it in, and we're going to test it. We're going to be able to tell you in um, our the the speed at which we're being able to detect it and get the word back out 
Um, the average length of time was seven days this last year. It still isn't instantaneous, um, but it's it, tremendously better than three weeks just a couple of years ago. And so we're doing a much better job of being able to inform people. Uh, the commission did adopt two additional regulations this past year. Uh, one is the carcass disposal rule. If you harvest an animal in the state, um, you can't um, transport the head and spinal tissue, spinal cord, unless you're taking it to a taxidermist or for, to a meat processor, you should leave that on site where you harvest the animal. Um, if you do transport it, um, it has to be disposed of in a type two landfill. And essentially that's the landfill that most municipal uh, uh, cities, towns, that's the, the dumps that they use. Um, but that contains it and it's less likely to, to result in the spread. Uh, the other thing that they did was to adopt a, uh, a rule regulating um, scents. Uh, so if you use a masking scent or an attractant scent, um, the Archery Trade Association and the Responsible Hunting Scent Association have developed uh, a deer protection program on RT quick testing. And those have both got a trademark check mark. If you see that on a scent, you know it's, it's legal to use within the state. If it doesn't have it, uh, it's not illegal to sell it, but it's illegal to use it. And Brian, I want to commend the department for their testing. Um, they give you a little card with a number on it, and you just log in and type in your number. It's pretty easy. And, and I'll tell you what, last year when I came through the check station on the last day, after dark, I pulled in and they had already closed down, but they recognized me for, you know, I guess from working with MWF and uh, they decided to break the knives back out and, and take a sample. So I, I was really fortunate of that because I was looking forward to seeing how the system worked. Um, also living where we first broke out here in Red Lodge. Um, it, I, I think we're seeing a little bit of fatigue and apathy from residents, uh, hunting residents. You just don't hear about it here anymore. Yeah. Um, I have seen a decline in numbers uh, anecdotally from the animals where I used to see them, whether that has anything to do with CWD or not, I don't know. But, you know, you just don't hear about it the way you did three years ago here in Carbon County. And I think that's unfortunate. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, you know, the the thing that's been amazing is is how much effort we've been able to put out there. Um, and, and that was in the midst of the COVID pandemic as well. So, um, we put a lot of, you know, I've had a couple of deer tested last year, you know, no, they didn't know me. Um, I'm still pretty new to the state, but I pulled up there and, uh, you know, you, you hand them your tag and they went into the back, took the sample. I didn't even have to get out of the vehicle to, to assist. So it, they, they do a tremendous job. And, uh, like you say, it's easy. You just get on the, on the website, look it up and, uh, it, it answers your question, puts your mind at ease, and you can go on. Now, Chris, I think, you know, some of the things Brian said, and we hear this in other states, uh, one of the ways we deal with CWDs to have fewer deer per square mile, fewer older deer, particularly older mule deer bucks, um, and pretty stringent, you know, movement, carcass disposal, and voluntary testing. How, how's that going over with, with MDF? you know, members and hunters that you talk to? I think they're very supportive of it. I think they understand the need. Uh, we had, you know, at our, at our, um, at our meeting in 2019, December, 2019, we actually spoke about uh, how we could work with FWP. Maybe we could help fund some little testing kits to pass out to hunters. Um, and we're still open for that idea. Um, we've come up with ideas uh, like putting check, checkpoints on onyx uh where hunters could actually just pull it up and say oh yeah you know and, and of course now it's open where we can get it tested just about any check station but uh before that the, we didn't have not all the check stations were doing it so we're getting fwp's getting better at that we're getting better at getting the word out it's just education and i know last year in the bitterroot valley our volunteers from our sapphire range chapter helped man the disposal dumpster uh, where they could drop off their carcasses. And we helped man that. It was only open, I think, two days a week. But we helped man that throughout the hunting season. And it got used quite a bit from what I hear. So, you know, what I hear statewide, um, we understand the concerns of it. You know, uh, our supporters, the hunters, 
they want to do whatever they can to help prevent the spread. And I think they understand that in certain areas, it's, it is about density and we're going to have to offer more tags. We're going to have to thin the herd a little bit. Um, so, you know, and, and it did get kind of quiet. I just, I just did a report on it in the next issue of our MDF magazine, because I had people asking what's the latest, what's the latest of CWD? Cause they didn't hear anything about it for the last year because of COVID. So hopefully uh, I shared some good links on there uh, that FWP has updated all their information on. So we'll get all, all that out to our readers. Now, building on that, you guys both mentioned something. I just want to throw this out there. We often like to take some rumors and myths and other maybe folklore No, we out don't. There and address it. Um, <laughs> you know, in Montana, we've got a, a tremendously long rifle season, five weeks, built on the back of six weeks of archery season for deer. And you often hear Montana is the place where you can't grow a deer older than four years. And it's, you know, we focus on opportunity versus quality. I just want to throw that out there, you know, Brian to you first and then Chris to you, you know, how is the harvest strategy in Montana developed and, and are we managing for opportunity over quality or is there other answers? Yeah, that's a, an excellent question. And uh, um, again, I'll, I'll just use my, you know, go-to phrase, it depends who you talk to and when you talk to them. Um, if you look at the at Montana's adaptive harvest management plan, um, there are, if I remember correctly, about 13 or 14 different locations in there that we consider our special management districts. And in those special management districts, um, we limit opportunity. We limit the, uh, you know, there's a, um, you know, this is one of the things that gets confusing to people that aren't familiar you can buy a license, but you have to draw a permit to validate that license to hunt in those areas. And so if, if you buy the license, you can hunt virtually statewide. And there are some great opportunities. But if you're looking for an older age class animal, those special management districts are the places to look at. The, the thing that is a challenge, and I don't care what state you go to, is if you manage for older age class animals, you have to limit the number of people that are allowed to participate. And so you can choose to um, hunt someplace that doesn't limit um, participation so much. And in those cases, you typically see a younger age class uh, age structure overall, or you can try to get into the limited draw and try to get into those older age class and places where you're managing those. And we're really trying hard to manage those in places where we don't have CWD so that we can continue to get that older age class uh, structure there. Um, but even having said that, there's so many different refugia around Montana, be it private land, be it remote country, um, even in some of the hardest, uh, hardest hunted areas. Um, every now and again, someone will come up with a tremendous older age class buck there. So I think in a lot of ways, Montana's got the best of both worlds. Um, you can argue about whether or not we have the balance just right, whether we need more special uh, management districts or fewer, but you have tremendous hunting opportunities here in Montana. We have to take another break to hear from our supporters. When we come back, um, I know, I think I've heard you guys have some new adaptive harvest management planning uh, process that you're putting into place. I'd like to visit about that because I think there's some opportunities for, for hunters and others to get involved and comment on that. So when we come back, we'll bring that up. For three generations and over 75 years, Weatherby has remained dedicated to excellence and innovation in producing quality rifles, shotguns, and ammunition. With 15 cartridges and unmatched ballistic superiority, know that nothing shoots flatter, hits harder, or is more accurate. Carry a Weatherby on your hunt of a lifetime and know you can depend on it to get the job done. At Weatherby, we exist to do one thing, inspire the dreams of hunters and shooters. To learn more, visit weatherby.com. All right, before the break, uh, we were talking a little bit about quality versus opportunity and some of these other things that uh, that you all go like, factor into how you're managing your wildlife. I understand uh, adaptive harvest management is something that you guys are taking a look at in a, in a new way um, for how you manage your herds. Can you give us a little bit of an overview on that? 
Yeah, and thank you for the opportunity to, to discuss that. Um, we just spent probably four or five years uh, working through some of the things that have worked, some of the things that haven't worked. And so um, we, on July 27th, we provided a work session to our commission uh, where we had the opportunity to really go through the adaptive harvest management plan in, in detail. Um, we had a couple of our uh, biologists that have taken the lead on that. Um, you know, Brent Lawner, is, he's, he deserves an awful lot of the credit for the work that he's been doing, putting in on it. And uh, Lindsay Parsons is our, our DRL coordinator, and she's been doing an awful lot of work on it as well. But there's a whole team of people that have been working on this, trying to get together, trying to refine kind of how we've been managing uh, mule deer, uh, primarily with that adaptive harvest plan. Uh, this last Friday, um, on uh, August 20th, we provided the commission uh, the first opportunity to, to adopt it for public comment. They did so. Uh, that's now open for about 30 days. Uh, we'll be taking comment. And we're the whole point of comment is this is the opportunity to get in and let us know what you think. We encourage the, the Mule Deer Foundation, hunters, anybody that has an interest in mule deer to, to comment on that plan, take a look at it. It's on our website. And this that input helps us guide because what what we're I'm fond of saying is that, and I, I heard this from a, a colleague in Colorado years ago, our biological sideboards are quite broad. Our social sideboards are much narrower. And the only way we're able to define those social sideboards is by gaining that input from the public. Uh, this, when we get through with this, we're hoping to have it adopted in October. Then we're going into our biennial season setting that will be shared with the commission in December. And again, there'll be some more public opportunity for comment then, hoping to adopt a final set of biennial seasons uh, in early February. So please, by all means, uh, the more uh, review and, and input we have, the, the better we are. And Brian, we can find that on FWP's website, right? That's absolutely correct. On the public you can portion, find it. The, the, the news in that. You can find it on FWP's website right now. Probably the easiest way to do it is go to the commission, uh, go to Inside uh, Montana, go to the commission, and then look at the last agenda and scroll down to the, it's the last item on the agenda, Adaptive Harvest Management Plan, and it's right there. Uh, there's also a public comment um, page, and you can go there, and that'll take you to a direct link where you can share your comments. So, Brian, for the non-biologists, non-people that that haven't had game management training, when you talk about adaptive harvest management, you're talking about the ability to address the number of deer you kill by unit, by habitat type, however, whatever it is, based on feedback that you're getting from previous efforts. Is that correct? I think that's a pretty good way of summing it up, Steve. You know, um, we, we think about it as, you know, kind of that four-step process where you develop a plan, you um, go ahead and, and implement it, you measure the responses from that plan, and then you amend the plan. And so, you know, our whole goal is to continue learning as we're getting inputs off of uh, this year's hunts, that's what we're using to inform next year's hunts. And we may find ourselves in either a restricted package, a standard package, or a liberal package. And those packages largely um, based on the data that we're collecting that hunters are providing us, um, and along with the surveys that we're conducting, all that information feeds into that structure that allows us to adapt uh, among years and trying to find uh, the hunt structure that's going to uh, maintain our, our populations where we want them. Populations naturally fluctuate widely. What we try to do as wildlife managers is kind of dampen those fluctuations and kind of guide the, the overall population trend to the best of our ability. Now, Chris, I know you're lifelong Montanan. Um, I've been here 11 years. And when people hear adaptive harvest management for mule deer, the, the thing I see most and the thing I hear most is that's all those doe tags in region seven. <laughs> is that what you hear too? I mean, I understand why they're giving those tags out, but it's, I mean, I can tell you that I was camped two years ago um, 
in parts of region seven elk hunting and a couple deer camps came in and they took full advantage of those extra tags and boy, the people, including, you know, even some FWP employees I talked to thought that they may have overdone it. But what, you know, Brian, what, what Brian you're saying is, is, Hey, you expect that if you, if you bump those doe tag numbers, you know, you've got a certain percentage of them are going to get harvested. Chris, what do you hear out there when, when this issue comes up from hunters and MDF members? Well, you know, it's kind of strange because it's it's what I'm hearing has changed over the last couple of three years since CWD has kind of taken the spotlight. Uh, I think before that, when they would keep bumping up doe tags in certain areas, you had, you know, you have those people that I don't maybe necessarily think they spend as much time in the field and they don't see as many deer. And then you have other people that spend a lot of days out in the field and they know they have a better idea of how many deer are out there. You know, you don't always, you can't always go by how many deer stand next to the road. And, um, and there again, like Brian's mentioned, it kind of depends on where you're talking at. Um, we've got some hot spots in the state now where we know CWD is an issue. And I think that we, the hunters are, are expecting those quotas to be adjusted accordingly to try and keep this under control. And then there's other areas where, you know, there's the CWD isn't an issue, but yet, you know, I, I hear from hunters. Well, I'll, I'll give you an example of Missouri breaks. You know, we hear a lot of things from people there that hunt, hunt the breaks that say, we've got to adjust the seasons. We've got to quit shooting small bucks because it's getting harder and harder to find a big buck. And they, they, and I don't, I don't hunt the breaks much. I hunted it a couple of days last year for the first time in 20 years, but just hearing from them, um, yeah, there's concerns and they want to see, you know, they really do. And I, and I hear this a lot is they want to see a, a mule deer management plan, statewide management plan. And I know it's in the works and I, I hope the mule deer foundation can be a part of that. Um, and that we can speak on behalf of, you know, those out there that support us and that are avid mule deer hunters. Um, and, uh, and really, really looking forward to that uh, come down the road. I don't know if Brian can give us some input on that or not. Yeah. And so the response I'd give on that is there are, our adaptive harvest management plan is that plan. That's what that's what uh, guides our, um, our approach in each of the the hunting districts that we have. Um, we're also in the process, and this is something that we've been working on now for um, a little over three years, trying to, you know, constantly trying to. Everybody tells us how complex our regulations are, trying to find ways to simplify it. Um, sometimes simplification. Um, you know, can be confusing because it's different. Um, but we're going to be taking input on, um, on, you know, the, uh, the adaptive harvest management plan. We're going to be taking input on the, uh, on the season, biennial season structures. We'll be taking input on our hunting districts and how to improve and how to make things simpler. Um, you know, we try to make things work for all deer hunters. Um, you know, we, we recognize avid hunters often have a different desire, a different, they've had experiences, they put experience under their belt, they've had some history with it, and they're looking for something a little bit different. People tend to, uh, they're, what they, the experience they expect tend to mature, if you will, over time. But we also try to um, cater to the novice, someone who's new at it, uh, someone who's, you know, wants to have a, a put meat in the freezer. Um, you know, there's a whole host of different reasons people uh, hunt, and we try to to provide that opportunity to each of them individually. Um, obviously, in my mind, the Mule Deer Foundation is a critical stakeholder for a number of reasons, um, not the least of which is the partnership that we have the opportunity to to continue to build upon um, the, the fact that the infrastructure that the foundation has, the understanding, the support that they've given to the Mule Deer Working Group over the years. Um, you know, obviously, uh, the Mule Deer Foundation is pretty sophisticated when it comes to the average participant. And we really appreciate that. and We really uh, want to continue to foster that relationship. But we also look to building new hunters, and uh, trying to get novice hunters a little bit more experience. Well, Brian, I know that you mentioned um, opportunities to formally public comment. 
um, your new director um, is also going to be out there in each region here very shortly. And, and it, it looks like, you know, setting all of the uh, forum talks aside, you know, for what the, the purpose is and, you know, coinciding with adaptive harvest management input and season structure input. Really, the new director um, is in, I guess, part of his leadership team is going to be going around to each region to meet people. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity for not just MDF members, but for general hunters to come in and, you know, put a face with the name and, and ask the hard questions that, you know, that, that, that they want to ask. Yeah, that's a great point, Steve. And I'm glad you brought those up. Um, you know, unfortunately, I'm not going to be with him on that tour. Uh, but um, the things that I keep hearing um, Director Warsick say, you know, he when he makes an error, he owns it. He, he, he's the first one to say, you know what, that was my screw up. Um, he's he wants to hear what people have to say. And so if you have the opportunity to be out and participate in these open sessions, um, take advantage of it. It, it, it's a great opportunity. Share your thoughts, share your ideas. Um, you know, we can't agree with everything everybody says. Uh, we can certainly listen to everything everybody says. And oftentimes when we don't agree with something someone has said, um, oftentimes there's, there's a learning opportunity in hearing that, that point, that something that you may not have thought of, something that we might um, programmatically disagree with, but it's a perspective that we perhaps haven't looked at. And so, um, you know, it's be kind, um, but please be open and honest. I, I, I wouldn't hesitate to, to ask any questions. Sounds like a good mantra for life right now. Yeah. <laughs> well, Guys, we're, I, I we are running it, out of time, though. So yeah. uh, not wolves and bears, right, Brian? <laughs> <laughs> or, or I don't trapping. think we have. That's a whole nother episode, Steve. I think we should leave those for now. <laughs> Before because we jump, we, Jody, I, I want to ask Chris one thing. There is something unique about Montana for MDF. Um, we have the ability to get an MDF license plate. I know I have one on my truck. Chris, you have one on your truck. Tell us a little bit about what that program is and, and how that money is then used. Well, you know, Montana, uh, you, well, at one point they had literally hundreds of specialized plates. Uh, but early on when there wasn't that many, uh, Mule Deer Foundation jumped on board and designed a plate and we got tied in with the state. They approved it and we get a percentage of the new plates that are purchased. And then we get a percentage of every year's renewals. And we, we earmark that money in that, in that uh, license plate fund for access programs primarily. And we've, uh, we've utilized that money. We've raised some really good dollars with that. I know two years ago we drew from it and helped out with the, uh, the Dearborn Creek access project up by Augusta. And we were able to pull, I don't remember the exact numbers, $20,000, $25,000 out of there. So it does add up pretty fast. And, um, and we're starting to promote it even more now because I don't think we've ever really heavily promoted that. But I'm glad you brought that up because it is very important. My wife has a plate. I have a plate. Um, there's there's a few hundred of them around the state, but I think there could be a whole lot more. Um, and we, we hope that people will look into that and help support us that way as well. And you know, the one thing I learned uh, last year, um, you don't have to wait for renewal to go in. You can go in and change plates anytime, anytime you want. So you can change... Um, you know, I, I would encourage all of our listeners that live in Montana to get an MDF plate. I'd love to see our plates on as many of our plates on the road as there are our, our partner groups. Um, because I think Mule Deer, you know, we, we use the money good. We're pretty transparent about how we use it and we are dedicating it for that access portion. But I'd like to see more out there. And I think that's a challenge to our Montana listeners. Absolutely. They are beautiful. It's a really neat plate. Uh, it's a really great opportunity to show your passion for mule deer, hunter and, mule deer hunting and conservation to get one of those plates. Again, we are running out of time, but I do like to often give a chance to have, is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you'd like to mention uh, or any follow-ups that you'd like to say, Brian, Chris, either of you? Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Um <clears throat> 
covered yeah, a lot there, of ground, didn't we? Yeah, we did. <laughs> we did. I'm trying to remember if there's some other aspect that I'd love to take a shot at before I leave. I, I don't know. I can't think of anything else off the top of my head right now. You're welcome back anytime, Brian. So just give me a call and we'll set it up. Thanks. I, I will just throw one. I will just throw one thing out there as as kind of a wrap up. Is you know, when I came on board three years ago as a new regional director, my goal was to have twenty fundraising banquet chapters in the state of Montana, and we're sitting at about fifteen right now. So I'm still looking for people that would be passionate enough and have the time to help us start up chapters in Haver, Malta, Glasgow, um, up on the High Line. We really need a, a bigger presence up there. We're inching that way with our new chapter in Lewistown. We always say have chapters in Great Falls and Helena and Butte and, and all around the state. But the Highline area, if there's anybody up there that would like to help us, uh, please get a hold of me, Chris at MuleDeer.org. It's real simple. And I would love to hear from you. And I'll just say, if you aren't a member, please join. That's um, absolutely true as well. We, we we need as much support as we can possibly get to help the, the organization function the way it needs to, but it also helps to add um, value and input to the work that, that our state agencies are doing, whether it's in Montana or anywhere else. So gentlemen, thank you guys so much for the time you took to talk to us today. And we're looking forward to, I'm looking forward to getting back up to Montana uh, sometime soon, hopefully without the smoke. I was up in Missoula a couple of weeks ago and it was pretty smoky, but, uh, but hopefully we're, we're going to get those fires died down and, and have a good hunting season ahead of us. Until the next time, this is Jody Stemler. And I'm Steve Belinda and thank you for talking mule deer. Thanks for talking mule deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Mule Deer.